Good morning. If you have your Bibles, trust that you do. Uh, turn with me to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 3. As we continue our series in Mark, I'm going to warn you that we've got a lot to cover this morning. We have, I think, around 63 verses and 14 points. And I'm hoping to have you out of here in time for kickoff of the Sunday night game. So hopefully uh, we can knock this out. <laughs> I'm really excited. Hopefully you'll see why we, I wanted to grab this entire section together. I think there's a tight argument of what's happening here in the Gospel of Mark, of, of what Mark is doing here by the Spirit. But before we dive in, let's uh, go to the Lord and ask for help. Let's ask that He would guide us as we look at His Word. Let's pray. Father, we do come to You. Um, and again, Lord, we, if we're not amazed, we should be amazed that we can gather around Your Word these centuries after it was written down. Uh, it has been handed down over and over and over. No other piece of literature even comes close to what we have in the Holy Scriptures given over by Your Spirit. And so, Father, we gather around this ancient text together. Uh, We gather around a man's uh, account of Jesus Christ. Uh, This man is, is barely known to the world except for this book. And we thank You for this account. Lord, we pray that by Your Spirit who authored Your Word, that You would now speak. And Father, You would allow those who do not know You to move from being judged by You, Lord, to, to accepting and enjoying Your grace offered to them in Christ. Lord, I pray for those who are followers of Christ, genuine Christ followers. I pray there would be an encouragement to keep going, to endure, to trust that You will bring significant fruit. I pray for that, Lord. I pray that You will do that. So we're asking these things, we're asking big things, and we're trusting that You, Father, will answer. So we ask Him to You, Father. We ask Him through the name of Jesus. And we ask now that You would apply them by Your Spirit. Amen. Well, um, let's start on a, a foot of honesty, and let's just be honest with each other, this, if we're honest, feels insignificant. Uh, Truth be told, uh, while there are smaller gatherings that will happen today, we are a small gathering. We don't have a whole lot of resources. Um, And if you don't just consider us, just consider all of Christendom, all of Christianity, if you will. Even just considering all of Christianity, it feels pretty insignificant. Especially when you look at the fact that the world to the east of us, uh, they're, they're pretty uh, upset with us. They think that Christianity is, is associated with the West. It's way too progressive. And as a result, they want to hold on to their own ways of thinking. And then you think of the West, and Christianity is seen as being not progressive enough, holding back the Western culture from where it wants to go. The future of Christianity feels somewhat uncertain. 
And so if you consider us, you consider all of Christianity, and then you just stop and consider your own soul. Just a mere pause at our own souls and things start to feel insignificant. Many of us feel tired. Many of us look at the problems that plague our souls. The sins that we feel continue to stay there. The fact that there's a discrepancy between the ideal of where our soul should be and the reality of where it is. And the Christian message feels insignificant. One of the amazing things about the Gospels, and there's a lot that is amazing about the Gospels, but it is how they resonate with where we are today, written so far ago. And I hope you'll see, in a little bit of time together this morning, in this passage, that Jesus helps us understand the nature of the kingdom, and He's going to distinguish between those who are genuine kingdom citizens and those who are just along for a ride. And in so doing, we will find, I hope, great hope for our souls. Great hope for where Christianity is heading. Great hope for where we as a church are heading. And that there is an amazing amount of significance in being part of the kingdom. So Mark chapter 3, let's look at verse 7 together. Verse 7 through 10, Jesus withdrew with His disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that He was doing, they came to Him. And He told His disciples to have a boat ready for Him because of the crowd, lest they crush Him. For He had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around Him to touch Him. So by this time, in the Gospel of Mark, we are already two and a half years into the ministry of Jesus. And we're, we're less than a year and a half away from the cross. So think about that. In that amount of time, a crowd has had time to gather. And Jesus has gained a following. Point one, Jesus will have fans. Jesus will have fans. Notice the text tells us why the crowd came. Because they heard all He was doing. This is to stand in direct contrast to what we heard about James and John and Simon and Andrew and Levi or Matthew and how they left all they had to follow Jesus. No, no, no. The crowd, on the other hand, is going because they're intrigued to see what Jesus is doing, to see what He has to offer Notice that Jesus and the crowd have dueling aims. The crowd wants to touch Jesus so that they may be healed, yet Jesus is getting in a boat to back away from the crowd. He intentionally distanced Himself from the crowd to teach them. Pastor Augustine, writing 1,500 years ago, said this about this passage. He said, the crowd wanted to touch Jesus by hand and Jesus wanted to be reached only by faith. 
Jesus has had from the very beginning fans. He has always had fans, and the fans of Jesus and Jesus have always had competing aims. Look with me at verse 11. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, those are the demons, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Yet again, and I say again because Mark's already done this before, Mark lets us know that the demons know who Jesus is. He uses language here to let us know this is not just a one-time thing. It's continually happening. He says, whenever the unclean spirit saw him, there's a tense there of continual action. Point two, confession of belief does not make someone a Christ follower. Mere confession of belief does not make someone a Christ follower. The demons confessed. Mark establishes this precedent early on that mere confession is just not enough. Even those who wildly oppose Jesus confess that He is the Son of God. So while followers of Jesus will certainly confess who He is, that is not sufficient enough to make one a genuine follower of Jesus. Even the demons confess and believe. Verse 13 of Mark chapter 3. And he went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired. So he went up on the mountain and he called to them those whom he desired, and they came to him. Verse 14. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles so that they may be. Uh, with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is the son of thunder. I like son of thunder better, it's a little bit easier to say. Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Okay, so so now we get a glimpse at the followers of Jesus. We've seen that Jesus has fans. Now we're going to get a glimpse at the followers of Jesus. Mark intentionally set spatial distance between the followers of Jesus and where Jesus goes in the crowd, the fans of Jesus, because Jesus goes up on a mountain away from the fans. And there the text says He calls out whom He desires. So how does one become a follower of Jesus? Jesus calls you out. Point three, followers are called by Jesus. See this all across the Gospels. John 15, 16 might be one of the clearest ones. Jesus says pretty clearly, you did not choose me, but I chose you. That you should go bear much fruit. So notice that followers of Jesus are called by Jesus, but as they're called, they're always, always sent out. 
How do we see that in that text? It says he appointed the twelve so that they might be with him and he might send them out. Every follower of Jesus is called to be sent out. Every man listed here, except for Judas. Just think of this. Every man listed there, except for Judas, gave his life to see the Word of God spread, to see the Gospel spread to a man. Some crucified, some beheaded, some skinned alive, some burned, some died alone on islands. Every one of them was sent out to see the Word of God spread. Verse 20, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize them, seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Alright, so now Mark sets us up in a very interesting irony. So we've seen that Jesus wants more belief out of the crowd than what is there. On the other hand, his family is upset because of the crowd and all of the fans. So while Jesus is demanding more belief out of the crowd, his own family, his own flesh and blood, thinks the crowd should have less belief. Point four, family origin does not make one a follower of Christ Family origin does not make one a follower of Christ. If ever there was a family who's allowed to be considered a Christian family, I'm going to offer up it's the family that changed the diapers of Jesus. Yet we are told that His family does not recognize who He is. They do not see Him as the promised one of God. They do not understand the rescue mission He is involved in and entrusted with, at least not yet. Let us be duly warned. Your family origin cannot make you a follower of God. Verse 22, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. That's another name for Satan. And by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. And he called them to him. And he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. 28, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemes they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. The scribes are the ones that know the Old Testament. They know the writings. We recently completed an overview series of the Old Testament, and I'm hoping, if if nothing else, you can walk away from that series and say, I know for sure 
that the theme of the Old Testament is we are helpless on our own and, and we need a, a uh, sacrifice, one who will come and be sacrificed for sin. So while Jesus might, Jesus' family might not recognize him, surely the seminary trained scribes who know the Old Testament in and out, surely they know Jesus when they see him. Well, verse 22 and through 30 could not be more drastic. Not only do the scribes not recognize Jesus as the Messiah, they look the God of the universe in the eyes and they say He is the Son of Satan. Unreal. Let us see from this text. Let us be Warn from this text. Religious knowledge does not make someone a follower of Jesus. Religious knowledge does not make someone a follower of Jesus. Jesus goes on to explain to them the foolishness of their premise. They say He's from Satan. He tells them how foolish it would be that he were from Satan being he's spending all his time casting out demons. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. This doesn't make much sense. And then he tells them that what they've done is unforgivable. They have looked on the full testimony of the Son of God delivered over by the Spirit of God through the Old Testament. They, by the Spirit of God, have been given the Son of God and they call it a hoax. That is the unpardonable sin. When a person, by the Spirit of God, sees full displayed the Son of God and calls it a hoax, it's unpardonable. It's unforgivable. It's exactly what Jesus handed over to them. Alright, verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they said to him and called to him. So he got his mother and his brothers. They're outside. And a crowd, again, you see this repeated. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister, and mother. So now Jesus' family has continued to try to get Him, to seize Him. They're trying to stop the ministry of Jesus, and by the grace of God, they were unsuccessful in their efforts. And yet we're taught another powerful statement. Followers of God obey God. Followers obey God. 1 John 3 puts it this way, no one abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. So Christ's followers obey the Lord Jesus. By no means does this mean that Christ's followers are perfect. By no means. But it does mean this. One cannot and will not sin without repeating which includes working to stop sinning. One of the surest ways you can know that you are not a follower of Christ is that you repeatedly sin 
and make no efforts to stop. Hear from the Word of God. You are not a follower of Christ, if that's the case. Followers of Jesus will always choose Him over their sin. Alright, chapter 4, verse 1. Here we go. And again, He began to teach beside the sea. And a very large, you can probably already know what's coming, right? Crowd. This is so interesting because the reason I put all these together, I want you to see... When the Gospels say large crowd, we think, hooray, Christianity is doing great right now. When the Gospels say large crowd, they mean problem arising. That's what it, It's never positive. It's always negative. And again, he, he began to teach by the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so they got in a boat and he sat uh, in it on the sea. Large crowd comes, Jesus backs away. And the whole crowd was behind the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. If you're not farmer type here, this is not a person with needle and thread. This is a person throwing out seed. Um, A cedar went out to seed. Um, Listen. Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns. The thorns grew up and choked it, yielded no grain. And other seed fell into the good soil and produced grain, growing up, increasing, and yielding thirtyfold, and sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you, has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. Verse 12, So that, and we read this together out of Isaiah 6, they may indeed see, but not perceive. And may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? So again, we've got a crowd gathered. And Jesus teaches them. And Mark says that Jesus says, I'm going to teach you how. I'm going to teach you in parables. After the crowd leaves, after the fans leave, the follower of Jesus ask him about the parables and he explains to them that he teaches in parables so that the secret of the kingdom of God may be for those on the outside. But for those on the inside, he will explain. Then he quotes Isaiah 6. Well, remember in Isaiah 6 you've got the commissioning and we read it together of Isaiah. And remember that's one of the worst commissioning services ever. Poor Isaiah has God say, I'm going to commission you to go out and preach and nobody's going to listen, right? No no person who's ever been commissioned to preach since Isaiah has any room to complain. Your job 
is you will preach, and they will not listen, thus saith the Lord. It's exactly the passage that Jesus is quoting from. If you've grown up in church, and you've never actually taken the time to read through the Gospels, I mean, just start with a Gospel Chapter 1, verse 1, and give it a read. By the way, it does not take long at all. It only takes a couple hours. Pick any of the Gospels. It doesn't take long at all, especially pick Mark as the shortest. It just doesn't take long. You ought to do it. I'm going to promise you. There's going to be a lot of things that will trip you out. But there will be nothing that will trip you out more than the fact that Jesus is so hidden. It will blow your mind. We often think of Jesus as a political figure looking for a support base or a fan base to kind of figure out where he can get his niche. But if you look at any of the four Gospels, you will see that Jesus intentionally distanced himself from the crowds, tells people to stay quiet about him, teaches in ways that are hidden, and does as much as he can to distract the crowds as he does to attract the crowds. It's unbelievable. Why? Because Jesus does not want mere fans. He wants followers. Let me say it again. Jesus does not want mere fans. He wants followers. The best way to distinguish between fans and followers is to communicate the Gospel. The Gospel always moves a person's heart every single time. It will either soften their heart and lead them to faith, or it will harden their heart and move them further away from faith. Point seven, proclamation of the Gospel brings either judgment or life. Proclamation of the Gospel brings judgment or life. Jesus is so kind to turn around and explain the parables. Hand it over to us through the ages. We have the Lord saying, to those on the outside, I'm not going to explain it. But to you on the inside, I'm going to explain it. Oh, the kindness of God that centuries later, by the Spirit of God, you sit and we around the Word of God have the Spirit of God explain to us the parable. Enjoy the mercies of God. Jesus then graciously explains it. Look at verse 15. And these are the ones along the path. So He's going to give us four types of soils. Verse 15, And these are the ones along the path where the Word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the Word and it, that is sown in them. So the first type of soil really is no soil at all. There's nowhere there it can gain any type of root. The gospel really gets no hearing whatsoever in this person's soul. The evil one quickly comes and snatches it away. These folks never even become fans of Jesus. Let us not be surprised when our culture is not a fan of Jesus. There are many that have not been fans of Jesus. There's a whole section of soil that Jesus said would never be fans. Point eight, many will not be fans of Jesus. Verse 16. And then we're going to see the other, we're going to see two more types of soil of the four. So one type, no fan whatsoever. These other two. And, and these are the ones, verse 16, 
sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a little while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things, it enters in and chokes the word. It proves unfruitful. Some will, so while many will not be fans of Jesus, many will be fans of Jesus. Some will be fans who absolutely love the idea of Jesus. They respond with great emotion and adulation. But as soon as any type of persecution or testing comes, they turn away. These are fair weather fans. They like Team Jesus as long as it's clear that Team Jesus is winning and in charge. But when tough times come, they're out. This is the type of fan, the type of soil that is tested right now in many countries in the Middle East where many Christians or those who have called the name of Christ are experiencing persecution and they're being tested and and many of them are finding out they were not followers of Jesus. With persecution, they go away. Then there are those fans who are fans of Jesus, but they're just as much, and hear carefully, they're just as much fans of the world. They're double-minded. This is the biggest temptation in an American context, especially in the Bible Belt. That is, while persecution doesn't drive many folks away in the Bible Belt, prosperity does. These seem great. These are folks who think the things of Jesus seem great until they realize that Jesus and the thing of the world are actually conference rivals. They play each other quite a bit and you have to choose one team or the other. You cannot play on both. So you cannot be a fan of the world and a follower of Jesus. Point nine, many will be fans but not followers. Many will be fans but not followers. Verse 20, But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the Word and accept it. While many will not be fans of Jesus, and while many will be fans and not followers of Jesus, by the grace of God, some will be followers of Jesus. This leads us straight to the next point. Listen to the end of verse 20. But those that were sown on the good soil are are the ones who who hear the Word. So he's telling us, the genuine followers, how are you going to know the genuine followers? It's a huge question. How do you know? You've heard this put before. How do you know that you know that you know? Let me let you know what Jesus thinks about that question. He's not going to come down to you remembering an emotional experience, walking an aisle, signing a card at vacation Bible school, being dunked in a baptismal pool, loving Jesus at, a, at a, uh, a Christian concert or anything like that. Hear what Jesus says on how do you know that you know that you know. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the Word 
and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. Followers of Jesus bear fruit. They bear the fruit of their lives being transformed and of seeing other lives around them because of their fruit, seeing other lives around them transform. Let me say this again. It's a banner I wish we could hang over uh, the, the back wall, but I know it won't do any good hearing they will not hear and seeing they will not see. All Christ followers will bear fruit. All Christ followers will bear fruit. Um, you're going to see this. Just Jesus is going to take this and flesh this out. So it's, it's probably one of the most misunderstood things is that there's this certain class of Christians that bear fruit and the rest of us just support the class that does the fruit bearing. Nowhere in Scripture do you see anything like it. And the thing that shocks me the most in the New Testament about the difference between the few offices given over to the church and anything else is the lack of differences between those offices and everybody else. There's almost no distinction. You have the exact same calling. You have the exact same responsibilities. You even have the exact same qualifications. Short of maybe the qualification to teach. Every Christ follower is called to bear fruit. And every Christ follower, hear the word of God, will bear fruit. Alright, so I want you to see this. He says here that they're going to they're hear, they're going to accept, and then they're going to bear significant fruit. And guess what the next three parables happen to be on? Hearing, accepting, and bearing significant fruit. I don't think that's by chance. Verse 21, And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear with the measure you use it. It will be measured to you. And still more will be added. For the one who has more will be given, and for the one who has not, even that which he has will be taken away. Jesus uses just a very simple picture to make his point. We might picture it like this. You've got a group of folks on a dark trail. They can't see anything of where they're going. One guy has a flashlight. He pulls out the flashlight. Does it make any sense whatsoever for him to put the, pull the flashlight out and then cover it up? No. Right? It doesn't make any sense at all. Why do you pull the flashlight out? You pull the flashlight out so that it will illuminate your path and you can figure out where you should or should not step and so that it will illuminate the path of the others around you. Christ followers use the Word in their life to illuminate their path. And they make change, of course, based on it. And they tell others around them to make changes in their course based on it. Jesus says nothing is... Yes, is the Word of God revealed and hidden? Yes, but why do you reveal... I mean, why do you uh, hide things? So that you may reveal them. Think of the only things you ever hide. I thought about this a week and I thought, that's really phenomenal. That's not even the point Jesus is making. But you don't ever hide anything unless you want somebody to see it at some point, right? Why do you hide presents from your children? Because there's coming a point you want to show it to them, right? 
It's the whole point of Jesus hiding what He was hiding because there is a time and there is a context when it will be revealed. Now is the time for the Gospel to be revealed. And we, the children of God, reveal it. So the more we listen to the Word of God, this says, the more we let the light shine, the stronger the battery gets. How cool would that be, right? That's the way it is. That's the way it is when you are walking with God and learning the Word. The more you get, the more you will get. On the other hand, the less you use it. It's not like the battery stores up and you turn it back on and go, well, at least i got a lot left over. No, the opposite. The less you use the flashlight of the Word of God, when you turn it back on, the less you're going to have. That's the way the Word works in the life of a follower of Christ. The more you see, the more you will see. And this blows us all away. I can't tell you the number of times I've heard different ones of you say to me, I just can't get over how much there's here to not get over. Right? It's unbelievable. Yes, yes. Alright, so followers of Jesus, point 12, bear fruit by hearing. Verse 26, and he said, The kingdom of God is as, it, as, is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. I love this parable because this would be about as far as I can get with farming. So he goes out, he scatters seed on the ground, he sleeps, he rises night and day, I can do that, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how, that's me. I got no clue. The earth produces it by itself. The Greek word there is automatic. It's automatic. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. That means there's a lot of stuff happening there. All right. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle. That's how he gets it out. Because the harvest has come. You got a farmer. He goes out, spreads the seed, does his spreading. Comes back in, he goes to sleep, goes about his business. Before you know it, he walks out and goes, Ha! Huh, that's where I spread seed. Now we've got grain. Think I'll cut it. There we go. How much credit does he take for it? He spread the seed. That's it, right? That's all he can take. Well, why did he even spread the seed? Because he trusted. If I spread the seed, it will grow. All he did in the process to bear fruit is he just trusted and abided and accepted. Followers of God accept and trust and abide in Jesus. They don't try to fabricate fruit. They don't look for quick ways to bring it about. That's what the crowd was doing. They were looking for a quick in and out with Jesus. Can I go there, get healed, and walk away? It's not how followers work. They trust Jesus. They accept His promises. And then they just allow the harvest to come. Followers of Jesus bear fruit by accepting. Verse 30, And He said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? What parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed. Now, some of you, my age and below, mustard doesn't grow in a bottle. Um, this is something new to me too. I'm not going to lie. I had to do a little research years ago on mustard. I had no idea. I just thought it was a chemical. In a, but no, it's, it, 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 there's a such thing as a tree. 
that, that mustard grows on. Mustard, a mustard seed can be as tiny as a grain of sand. A mustard tree, I've never seen this. I'm only taking folks by the word. Can grow as tall as 15 feet. Now that was written in a commentary, so let's say maybe 10 feet. Okay, so it can be really big though, alright? So keep that in mind. It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground, it's the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out its large branches so the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable. That's judgment. But privately, so that's talking about the crowds. They only get parables. It's judgment. But privately, his own disciples, he explained everything. So you got this tiny, tiny mustard seed. I mean, that's crazy. Size of a piece of grain. You drop it in the ground and it becomes a ten-foot tree. Whoa! Jesus is saying that followers of God will bear fruit like that. 30, 60, 100 fold. There's different amounts, different folks, different amounts of fruit, but you will bear. It's not you should, it's not you might, I'm telling you. You will bear fruit that is so significant. It's on the proportion of of a mustard seed to a mustard tree. You say, how do you know that? Do you remember the names of those 12, let's say 11 men we just read out loud? You tell me. Look at their mustard seed size lives. Fishermen, nobody, tax collectors, And you and I just read their name on a continent they didn't know existed as we still tell the story that they told and people are going from being judged enemies of God to being the very children of God. That is enormous fruit. That's what happens. I know it's a lot to cover. I know you feel like you've gotten a lot thrown at you at once. I hope you see the comprehensiveness of what's going on. I want to ask you, because you live in a land full of Jesus fans, just chock full of it, of Jesus fans, please examine your heart. Are you merely a fan of Jesus? There is a big difference between a Jesus fan and a Jesus follower. If you're a follower, are you bearing fruit? Are you hearing the Word? Are you spreading the Word? Are you trusting? Just deeply trusting that He knows what He's doing. That if you follow, He will bring results. You may not ever see Him but it will bring them. Notice, it is not up to churches to bear fruit. Let me say it again. It's not up to churches to bear fruit. It is up to individual followers of Christ. Programs and gimmicks that churches put on, those are great for gaining fans of Jesus. You will get fans. 
Followers are found when one believer gets involved in the life of another and shares Christ and follows up. You may be a Christian mom or dad and you are right now struggling with the challenge of hearing and sowing the Word of God in your children. Persist, brother or sister. Persist. Or maybe you are a co-worker who needs encouragement to persist in spreading the Word to a co-worker. Persist. Or a friend to another friend. Or often, especially in this area of the country, one of the scariest things for us to do is to be a family member who has to sit down with another family member and explain the biblical difference between being a fan of Jesus and a follower of Jesus. I'm begging you. Persist. Believe. The church's main purpose is to be a place where we can gather to actively hear together, but we go exercise our fruit bearing outside of these walls. We, we come together to hear the regular preaching of the Word, to, to take the supper together. The church also exists. One of the main functions we can do for one another is to stand as a distinguishing mark in one another's lives and to say, I, I want to testify that I see fruit, that you're a follower and not just a fan. That's the other thing. That's why church membership matters so much. That's, that's what we do for one another. So as we finish, let me encourage you. Be patient and believe in the promises of Jesus. Don't just look for the quick results that the crowds look for. But like the followers of Jesus, hang in there. Go for fruit. Believe that Jesus will bring significant returns and they will have eternal consequences. May we be followers who hear the Word, who trust the Word, and believe that significant eternal fruit will come. And may we be a church full of Christ followers who see and believe that God will bring fruit, in particular, by making other disciples. Let's pray and I'll turn it back over to Pastor Charlie.